This was Harvest, who's walking off, leading worship for us this morning. Yes, she is. Uh, she leads worship uh, most of the time at Riverstone, uh, but this morning she's here. But the greatest part about her, she's engaged to Timothy Parker. Our, uh, yeah, yeah. Give it up. So uh, we're excited, and thank you for being here. We have, um, have a buddy of mine named Eric Lee running sound this morning. Wave your hand, Eric. There he is, good-looking guy. Um, Eric actually is, uh, we're borrowing him from Cedar Crest Church this morning. And uh, it was really funny. I, I emailed, I texted Eric, and he went to, he, he's a lead volunteer over there, and he went to my good buddy, our good buddy, Matthew Hudson, who basically kind of does everything there, uh, kind of their everything guy. And he texted me and said, what are you doing, stealing my volunteers, you jerk? And I said, yes, I am, in Jesus' name. And so it was good. And But he's here this morning, so if you see him, just thank him, shake his hand, and uh, we're glad he's here. All right. Well, a couple of things before we jump in this morning. Uh, we have uh, the financial seminar, if you can bring that, this, that slide up for me, Maddie, coming up on August 11th, it's a Saturday. Uh, I want to kind of just, just kind of this morning do a little bit of promo for it before we actually launch into it. Today's the first day we begin to sign up online, okay? So we have our computer set up over here, I encourage you to go sign up for it here. Or you can simply go to the Vintage 242 website, right there on the, the bars that says, like, who are we and staff and all this kind of stuff. There's one that says sign-ups, and you can literally kind of click that button, draw down. There's several things you can sign up for. So you can do it at home or you can do it today, okay? Uh, but I want to encourage you just to uh, sign up for that. But uh, one of the things, if you're in, in Scripture, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you don't have to turn your Bibles there, but in, in Luke uh, chapter 18, starting in verse uh, 16, excuse me, 18, going all the way through to verse 30, basically what we have in Scripture, in my opinion, is, a, is kind of one of their very first, Jesus' first financial seminars. Now, we're having our own financial seminar here August 11th, but Jesus had his own financial seminar in and through the story and the life of the rich young ruler. If you remember the story, remember Jesus, this guy comes to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep all the commands. He says, listen, I've kept every command since I was a, a child. And, and Jesus like, fantastic, two thumbs up, right? Good job, buddy. He says, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you go take all of your possessions why don't you sell them and give them to the poor? Scripture says that the man looked at Jesus, and Jesus was sad, and says he walked away sad because he was a wealthy man. And Jesus in that says, oh, how hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. And so in lies this biblical truth in the story of Jesus as it relates to the kingdom, as it relates to our finances and money, this story that when we read it, we struggle with. Because when we read this story and the things that Jesus is saying, it's all, it's, it goes, it's counterintuitive to what we feel, to what we're told, and unfortunately what many churches preach about money, as if God is poor and that you need to give everything that you have to the church. What Jesus comes and says is, listen, I'm calling you to be obedient with everything that you have because it doesn't belong to you in the first place. And Jesus wasn't asking him to give it to the church. He was asking him to give it to the poor. And what we begin to see in this understanding is that God, Jesus comes preaching this new revelation, or maybe he's re-clarifying an old understanding of finances that's a biblical perspective. 
so that everyone around would know that in how you deal with your finances, it is honestly 100% related to who you are in the kingdom of God and your obedience in the kingdom of God. And so what we want to do is this. We want to hold this financial seminar on August 11th, a Saturday, a Saturday, because we believe that this is one of the primary issues that we're facing in the church and in the world today. All of you know, whether you are or in the church or out of the church, whether you're saved or unsaved, whatever it may be, every single one of us in our culture, we're dealing and wrestling with finances. And for many of us, finances drives us. If we're living in quote-unquote poverty, we all we can do is think about what we don't have and what we wished we had. And if we are living in excess, all we're doing is thinking, how can we keep it and not lose it? And people are bound by finances on both ends of the spectrum. And what Jesus, I believe, teaches in Scripture is very clear. And it's this understanding. It's the reason why it's the second most talked about issue in all the Scripture, that being money and finances, is simply this. Where your heart is with money, so there is your heart with the Father. If you've been in a church that spends more time talking about money or as much time talking about money as they do about Jesus, then guess what? They are in sin. Because money is something that should never bind us, even in our church setting. That's something we're aware of, but we have a biblical kingdom understanding. And that we are then free with our finances and that we are living whole and how we do our budgets and how we spend and how we receive and all of these things. And so on August 11th, we want to sit down and say, listen, we want to help you have a healthy perspective and understanding of finances, whether you're in poverty and bound by it or you are living in excess financially and bound by it. We want to give you biblical understanding so that you can be free to freely be obedient with everything that you have, whether God's calling you to give it away or whatever it may be. We want you to feel free and to feel like you're on top of that and that you have understanding and that you have a biblical understanding. Because we believe this. We believe that if every single person in our community, whether they're a Christian or not, live by the biblical understanding of finances, that we would actually be doing okay. And we wouldn't be living in fear. We wouldn't be bound by it. That it would be something that finances is not a cuss word for us, but it's a word of joy. Then we think about our bank accounts doesn't depress us, but it inspires us. And so we don't think that this is a one. This is not a one shot in the bucket type deal. That if you come to this financial seminar, then all of your worries are going to be, and all of your stuff will be fixed immediately. No, it's simply a launching pad. For us, Ed's perfect scenario is this. Ed's the chair of our finance team. If you don't know him, the the, the perfect world case scenario, the my perfect case scenario. I'm saying because Ed's been kind of leading the charge on this, right? But I'm coming alongside of him. Is simply this: at the end of this, we would love for ten couples in tears and calling from the Lord to come and say, "Ed, we've been called by God to do financial discipleship here at Vintage and to help people have a biblical understanding of finances. Will you please help us and allow us to be used by God here at Vintage?" And Ed will do the hallelujah dance in a big circle all the way around you and praise Jesus and probably speak in tongues. Who knows, right? He'd be so excited. So that's what we're saying. Come, come be a part of this seminar. If you were asked that you would make, if you have time to make this a priority, it's an outreach for us and it's a $50 package. I just want to name that. Now, listen, we're going to, this is going to be about 
20, over $2,000 out of pocket for vintage. So we're charging this. We're not recouping all of our funds. We think it's that important, okay? But what we are saying is it's a $50 pocket package is this. If you know somebody, your mom and dad, your brother and sister, your neighbor, somebody you work with, who you think would, would, would be helped by having a biblical understanding of finances, then you can pay 50 bucks, and that's you and your spouse, and someone else to come to get books, all this kind of stuff, right? Four lunches and two books. They get a book for their family. So I want to encourage you, for the next, next couple of weeks, and when you used to go out to eat dinner with your family and spend about 35 to 50 bucks, don't do that. And just specifically set that money aside to go towards outreach for somebody in your community that you know needs this. And they can come. It's a real, it's a fun, it's a, it's a fun time. It's a good time. We have some Crown Ministries coming to do a great job. So anyway, I want to invite you to come and do that. Make that happen uh, on Saturday, August 11th, and it would be great. Okay? So with that... There you go. There's the promo. You can sign up today. You can go online any day this week and sign up for it. It'll be fantastic. Don't forget, first come, first serve on children. And so just be aware of that. Okay. Now, last week, if you were here, we know we looked at Jeremiah chapter 29, right? We talked about the the, the, the Israelites and the people of God. And, and, and so this morning, we're going to continue on in that story. But we're going to look at what God was doing in the midst of their lives in the moment and what we can learn from that. Now, growing up, just like all of you, I have very, very vivid memories with my families. I was, I was, like I said last week, I was an only child. So I have vivid memories of being with my mom and dad. I have memories of vacations. I have memories of them coming to my sporting events and cheering me on. I have memories of going to Georgia football games and Braves games. Uh, I didn't go many Falcons games. They were so bad. But remember, I wore the bag over my head, a couple of them. But no, it's like I, we have all these memories of going and doing these things. I have memories of driving in the car, going to Grandma and Grandpa's. I have memories of doing absolutely nothing with my parents as we sat there just twiddling our thumbs. I have all sorts of memories of my parents just loving on me and telling me how much they love me again and again and again. And me like, I know you love me. You tell me every day, right? But just like all of you, I have very vivid memories of being disciplined, especially by my dad. One of those great stories of discipline was now, I think it was between six and eight years old, but probably closer to six. And we're about to go on a family vacation to go camping at Lake Hartwell. And I'll never forget, you know, my dad's got the truck loaded up with the boat and stuff. And, and we were going to take the family uh, uh, station wagon, right? And, and, and so the, in the back of our station wagon, there's this big spare tire. And we have to move so we can put stuff in there, right? And so the spare tire's there. And my dad says, hey, you know, move that, move that spare tire. So my mom begins to walk over and move it. And I say, Mom, I'll get, I'll get it. I can lift it. And she, in her, in, in her knowledge and love, said, oh, honey, that's probably too heavy for you. You probably shouldn't lift it. Now, being, being, what I, being a man at the time, right, six years old, seven years old, I said, Mom, I can get this. I'm strong enough, right? And she goes, um, I'll let you, but I think it's too heavy for you. Like, oh, Mom, I can't believe you said that, right? She's like, all right, well, it's too heavy, but I'll let you. Right? Kind of that, one of those learning moments, right, learning moments. So I pull in, I reach in, and I start pulling that tire out. I mean, I was like, I mean, it's just sliding right across. I'm like, 
yeah, I got this. Look, and they're like, yeah, whatever. And I pull it. There's, there's always a tipping moment with weighty things, right? Right here, pulling it out. Station wagon has it. Station wagon has it. All of a sudden, tipping point, kind of in the middle. And all of a sudden, I pull here, and all the weight falls to me. And guess what happens? I'm not strong enough, right? I'm, I'm child handling and not man handling it, right? So that tire comes, slide right out, boom, lands right on my foot. And it hurts. So it hurts, but also I'm embarrassed, right? I am, my face is red and it's good. And all of a sudden there's other family going with this. And the dad's sitting behind me and he just, he starts laughing, right? And I'm like, ooh. And all of a sudden I hear my mom start snickering a little bit and laughing. And all of a sudden Incredible Hulk comes out. This like anger, like I just, I turn around and at full speed I push my mom as hard as I can. I'm going to hell. That's what you, that was your gasp right there. I felt it, right? Whoa. All of a sudden, I feel this, I feel this, I feel this arm, and I am this far off of the ground in three steps, right? It's from here to the door right there. In three steps, my dad has me inside the house, on the couch with the door closed, and I can see every vein in his, in his, in his neck, right? And I'll just say this, whatever happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. But let me just say this. I learned right there in the moment that pushing my mom was not a good thing, right? It was an improper response to anger, even if she laughs at me. And I will say, I never touched her again in an improper way and definitely never pushed her in the complete fear of dad, right? In the moment. And each of us, right? Each of us, we probably have some similar story that we could tell about the discipline of our parents growing up. This word discipline is found in Scripture. It's the Greek, when the New Testament, the Greek word paiduo. Paiduo. And this understanding of discipline, yes, it has in mind this reaction, this punishment for wrongdoing, like I just named for you here about my dad and my response to my mom. But it also has the flip side, flip side form, which is this proactive form of discipline, which is training educating and being raised up in the way that you're supposed to go. And what I would say is this about the discipline of the father is that the primary way the father disciplines is an everyday reality of speaking into our lives, of educating and training. It's just like you with your own children, like you and your parents. How much time did your, how much did your, did your parents spend more time speaking truth into your life or reacting in punishment? Most of the time, parents spend more trying to teach their children, to raise them, to discipline them in the correct steps to take in every day of their life. Do you see what I'm getting at? Discipline, this Pajua has a dual nature to it, a duality. Yes, over here, it's a reaction of punishment for wrongdoing, but it's primarily a proactive investment of God in education and of training, and of raising up every day in the path that you're supposed to walk. So I experienced that every day in my life. I'll never forget when I was in junior high. My parents, like all of your parents, said, be careful who you hang out with. Don't hang out with the wrong crowd because they're going to pull you down. As strong as that you think that you are, they're going to pull you down. You, they, you can't pull them up, right? One bad apple spoils a whole bunch. You've heard all that, right? And so this whole idea of your 
your parents disciplining you and the character that you were supposed to possess in ways that you can keep that good character by not hanging out with people of bad character. So in junior high, I have this rolling around in my head, and this kid named Mike comes up. Now, Mike, he's ultimately a good kid, right? But he, I know Mike, and I know that, that he could pull me in the wrong direction. He was stronger than I was. He was, he was more opinionated than I was, and I could see him shifting me and twisting, right? So one day he says, Steve, why don't you come over to my house? My mom and dad aren't home. Why don't you come over and hang out? And I remember my, my like the radar, like that, that, this, it's like, don't go hang out with bad people. You know, I just heard, this is bad people, bad people, right? And I'm like, Ugh. and so I froze and I go, oh, let me ask my mom real quick. Like, that's a good decision, right? And I walk in and said, mom, Mike has asked me to come over to his house, but I want you to tell me I can't go. And she looked at me, she's like, she goes, what? I said, she goes, you can't. I said, no, you can go. I said, no, 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 no. Just tell me I can't. She's like, you can't go to Mike's house. Thank you very much. I go outside. Hey, Mike, thanks for the invite, bro, but I can't come. My mom won't let me. I walk back in and say, Mom, here's the deal. Mike's parents are at home, and I just don't necessarily trust, and I know what you've said, so I just... I just want you to know I'm say I'm having you say this. I was, this wasn't as strong as to say it myself, but thank you for giving me an out. And she has looked at me with a big grin on her face, and she's just like, I just love you, right? Because in that moment, her discipline had trained me in my response in the moment. Discipline dual in its nature. So last week we looked at Jeremiah 29 and what we're, what the Israelites are experiencing in the moment clearly is the father's reactive discipline. He, they are experiencing punishment. If you don't know much about the Israelites, you need to know this, that for thousands of years, God had been raising up men and women to speak into their lives, to bring discipline and saying, don't walk in this way, but walk this way. But instead they chose to, to worship other gods, to, to chose to worship idols, right? They, they they chose to intermarry with other cultures. So basically, meant they were yoked with unbelievers, right? And so in that, they were being pulled away from God. So for generation after generation, God continually is trying to discipline them, trying to, to woo them over here to the path of life, on and on and on. Until finally, one day, God says, enough is enough. And he reacts in punishment. It's a reactive punishment. He comes and he puts them into captivity, because of their disobedience and because of their sin. For generations, God had been speaking, wooing them back, and they wouldn't listen. We see God's word of warning to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse, uh, verse 64, literally almost 1,000 years earlier than this actual being taken into captivity, where he says in verse 64, he says, because of your disobedience, I will scatter you among the nations. And verse 65 says, among those nations, you will have no repose, no resting place for the sole of your feet. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both day and night, night and day, never sure of your life. I'm going to read that again. And I want you to also kind of. Put, our, put yourself in the shoes. How many of you have lived at a place that your feelings mirror what the Israelites are walking through because of disobedience or sin in your life? It says this, among those nations, you will have no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot, right? You'll be like a nomad. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind. 
stressed out, worried, eyes weary with longing. You just want to be free, right? And a despairing heart, even despairing of life. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. You see, God in Jeremiah 29 had taken the whole Israelite nation and for thousands of years, literally, had warned them, had disciplined them, had trained them and been proactive in their life. But finally the moment came and God said, I have to react now. I have to I have to do this work of disciplining because if I leave you to your own devices, you will die. So, in turn, God disciplined them. But I want you to hear me say this. God disciplined not because of his wrath. He He didn't punish them out of vengeful anger. But he did it instead because of his love. Parents, You discipline your children, not because you're angry with them, but ultimately because of your love for your children. You discipline them because you know that if you do not, they will continue on a path of destruction. You discipline them in the moment because if you do not, what happens? They continue on into places that ultimately destroy them. And God looks and says, listen, I love you too much to let you continue on this path, Israel. Therefore, I must react in punishment and discipline you. Right. I've been trying to discipline you over here, but you weren't listening. So I'm having this one over here because I love you. God does not discipline out of his wrath. God doesn't discipline because he's vengeful in his anger. He disciplines because he loves us. This is the testimony of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 6. He says, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes as everyone he accepts as sons. The Lord disciplines proactive those that he loves and he punishes, disciplines everyone he accepts as sons or as daughters. He goes on in verse 10 says, our fathers or our mother, our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us for our good, for our growth, from our shift from death unto life, right? That we may share in his holiness. God's discipline in our life, his movement in our life is because he loves us. What this means is that God loves humanity, loves the church too much to leave it to its own devices. He loves us too much to let us live in apathy. He loves us too much as a people to let us continue in a life of disconnectedness from him. He loves us too much to let us live in this state of lukewarmness. You see, that's what happens to people who continue to walk in their own devices. Their path of death is a path to continued apathy and disconnectedness, and lack of conviction in their life. The the longer they live, it's not they literally just go and also start living for hell. For the church, what happens is that we just continue on this path of destruction when God's speaking to us, and it just leads us to unbelievable apathy, to where we all also begin to think, well, God doesn't really care what we do, right? And this doesn't really matter what's happening in my life. I just continue those paths, and we live in apathy and in laziness. In disconnectedness, completely missing the will of the Father and kind of walking in the direction that we want to walk when we went to walk it. 
And God says, I love you too much to leave you in a place of lukewarmness. Revelation, God speaks very clearly. It's overwhelming when you read. He says, listen, I would rather you be hot in your zeal and passion for me, or honestly, I would rather you be cold, completely living opposite to me so I can exactly know where you stand. Because when you live lukewarm, I hate it. I mean, that's a powerful thing. With what God says is this. God gets more, gets more overwhelmed in frustration with the lukewarm Christian than he does the atheist pagan living separate from him. You sit there and talk about how bad the atheist is or whatever it may be, and God's like, actually, they're easier to bear than the people who are living lukewarm inside the four walls of the church. That's a powerful. I'd rather you vomit you out of my mouth. This is a powerful statement about the frustration, this tension that God lives with in the midst of our apathy, our laziness, and our disconnectedness from his will. And God's saying, listen, I love you too much to let you live in that place of disconnect. He, he would rather move us from apathy to, to zeal, right? From death to life, from, from wrongdoing to righteousness. God is looking, hear this, God is looking for a hungry, even starving people who are zealous to be filled by God alone and to walk with Him every day of their life. He loves us enough to discipline us back to a place of zeal and a place of passion and a place of hunger for him. This is what we saw in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, because of their apathy towards God, their choosing of other loves, choosing other gods, God disciplined them as an entire nation. He disciplined them. But the thing you have to remember, we've already said it, is that God, remember, he is ultimately for Israel. He's not against them. He is for them, right? We see this expressed in the words about prospering them in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 16. It says, God knows the plans that he has for them, plans to prosper them, plans not to harm them, to give them a hope and to give them a future. So the testimony of the story of Israel, listen to this, the testimony of the story of God in the lives of the nation of Israel isn't that God disciplined his children. That's not the story. For that's never where God's story ends for his people and for his children. God's story is that he disciplines because he loves us, because of what it will produce in the end. God's story is that he disciplines for a season, but not to leave us there, but to bring us out for a hope and a future. God's story always ends with redemption, with salvation, with renewal, with healing, and with the broken being made whole. Pause. I paused at 9 o'clock, and I felt like it was the word of the Lord in the moment. So pause. Scripture is very clear that we are supposed to be mature in Christ. No longer on spiritual milk, but on spiritual meat. That we're able to handle deeper things and God teaching us. And I would say this. What God is wanting us to get to is that we, and this is those who, those who are mature, 
those who have matured and they've grown in their relationship. If you're a if you're a new Christian, I'm not putting this weight on you. But if you've been a Christian for a lengthy season of time, then I want to put this just this weight of 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 maturity on you. Okay. And what, and how long does that mean? Let's just say 10 years or more, okay? And so for 10 years or more, you've been a Christian, you've been walking with Jesus, I would say this. And that's not really fair of me to do that, but you get the understanding here. Maturity is this in Christ. Those who are able to see the end while they are standing at the beginning. That when they enter into hardship and they enter into difficulty and things that cause frustration for them because of their knowledge of who God is, of, of, of God saying, yes, even in, your, even in your discipline, I am for you. I want the best for you. And my plan's not to leave you there. The place of maturity to say, even though I just walked into hell, I know the end result is for God to prosper you, not to harm me, to give me a hope and a future, because that is who he is as a God. And so even though everything is terrible right now, I celebrate with great joy because I'm walking with God because I know him and who he is. Now, that is not a word of condemnation for you. That is simply the testimony of those who have gone before us in maturity saying, even though I go through hell, I praise God with joy because he is with me. And he is there to prosper me and not to harm me. And he has a hope for me and he has a future. That God's movements in the body is to bring us out. The testimony of God is that his desire is never to leave us in a place of discipline, but to always bring us out. And so if I'm going through hell, I trust that God will prepare a table before me. Listen. If I'm going through hell, then I know that God will prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Not my family, not my church, not anyone else, but God my Father, because that's what he does. And that's why spiritual maturity is about connecting to Jesus in the midst of my frustration and tension. Why? Because he's the only one who can prepare a table before me in the presence of hell. And if I am in a spiritual place of maturity of knowing it, then I can live in that place of saying, God, even though I'm going through this, I know that you were for me and you were not against me. The testimony, the testimony from Jeremiah is that. The testimony of of Jeremiah is the realization that even their discipline, that God had a hope and a plan, and he was going to move in their life because he was able to live at the beginning of their discipline as as well as at the end of their discipline at the exact same time. So in a, in a crazy Jesus kind of way, God was able to release them and discipline them all at the same time. That's what he declared. That's probably too heavy or too far over our heads this morning. But the idea was simple. Jeremiah came and spoke and said, hey, God already knows what his plans are. He already sees the end at the beginning. And you don't have to worry. You don't have to get frustrated. You don't have to live in anger and anxiety. He already knows. So the great thing for us in one whole week, we get to fast forward all the way to the end of the fruition of discipline ending and God moving in power. Turn to Ezra 1. Ezra 1. 
Ezra is just after First and Second Chronicles, just before Nehemiah. Uh, go, so go to Psalm and go left, or go to Isaiah and go left. First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, Ezra. Now, what you may not know, biblically speaking, just as you're turning there for your histo- history's sake, Ezra and Nehemiah, in at least up until the 1500s, was just one book. For some reason, the church back in the, I don't know, during those day, during that time, and decided to split the book in two. But for the first 1500 years, and for the majority of its written experience, it was always one book. It's kind of two stories in one type thing. Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Ezra coming in. And so, Ezra was a prophet of God, a priest of God who's speaking in the moment, okay? And so, Ezra 1 comes and he speaks this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus, this is, Cyrus has come down. He's, he's, he's defeated Babylon. Persia now is in, in charge of, of all the Israelites here in Babylon, right? And in the very first year, right, God's love motivates him to move on behalf of his people and to fulfill the word, his word spoken through Jeremiah. In fact, if you do the math, and this is important, if you do the math, God responded earlier than 70 years. The 70-year captivity began in 605 B.C. That's when it begins. Jerusalem was completely fell, was destroyed in 587 B.C., and then the decree for freedom was made in 538, the first year of Cyrus's reign in Babylon, which simply means this, that after 67 years, after the fall of Jerusalem, you could say that the mercy of God compelled him to move on behalf of the people. Basically, God said, enough is enough. And he moved with compassion because he, to, to the end that Jeremiah had already spoken and released and set the Israelites free. God disciplined his children because he loved them. He was, listen, he was patient for thousands of years by disciplining them, teaching and guiding and training them. But he, they would never listen. And so in their disobedience and in their apathy, right, and this being distant from God, God responded. He reacted and said, I have to punish you because I love you, God. And then in that punishment said, oh, long enough is long enough. And then he released them into freedom as was his plan all along. All along in their deliverance, in their, excuse me, in their, in their moment of being held captive, in their moment of discipline, God is thinking of their deliverance because God is a God of love. So, this morning, what do we see about 
God in the context of Ezra. And I write down these four things. I want you to write these four things down. They're very simple, but I want you to write them down. The first thing we see about God from Ezra is that God is patient. God is patient. When we so often we read about God's discipline in Scripture, we don't take into account that many times God has waited thousands or at least hundreds of years to bring the ultimate discipline of punishment. For every single one of them, God would wait and wait and long suffer. Patience, what patience is, long suffering, but long suffering, waiting and waiting and speaking and sending prophet after prophet to woo them back, to call them back, to discipline them back onto the path of life that he called them to. And finally, finally, God says, enough is enough. If I leave you without disciplining you with reaction, with punishment, you will continue off the cliff and you will fall. That is not okay for me, so I will discipline you. God is a patient God. Psalm 145, 8. Psalm 103, 8. Nahum 1, 3. Numbers 1, 14, 18. All state that God is slow to anger, that he is great in power, that he is rich in love, and he is full of compassion. These are the words that define patience. The captivity of Israel. Years and years of disobedience. And finally, God was like kind of a last resort, Right? Last resort, he brings this form of discipline. We all understand that, don't we? How many times in your life growing up did your parents come to you and say, you've left me no choice, and they give us the ultimate discipline? You've left me with no choice. I've told you this and this and this and this, and you finally, you never would listen. You've left me with no resort, and that's what God happens. God's patient, but his love compels him to finally put his foot down. Not in anger and wrath, but because he loves us. Second thing that we say is this. God is loving. God is loving. We've always said discipline in both forms, whether it's proactive of training and educating or whether it's in his reactive and his punishment. Both of these are forms of God's love. Because God recognizes the most dangerous place for us is to get to the state of apathy, the state of disconnectedness, the state of, 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 of our will being challenged. And we never choose the will of the Father, right? Living in this place of disconnectedness, this place of living opposed and unaware of God, his desires, his will, and his, his convictions. But God, he loves us too much to, to leave us there. Therefore, God's work throughout all of Scripture It's to take those who are living disconnected from him and to love them like a father until they wake up and return to him. That's the testimony of Hebrews 12. We'll read it again. Verse six, the Lord's discipline, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone and he accepts his sons or daughters. In verse 10, our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us. For our good. Because he wants us to share in his holiness. In the fullness of his life. Third thing we see is that God is faithful. God is faithful. So God through Jeremiah chapter 29 promises a 70 year captivity. But instead it only lasts 67. Hallelujah right. This is awesome. 
But the reality is that's a long time. I mean, 67, that's long enough for, for, I mean, depending on when you have kids, that's long enough to go from like, from baby to grandparenthood, and then maybe in Jewish days, even great grandparenthood, right? This is a long period of time. It's a long period of time, but you have to recognize that God and who God is, he's able to see the beginning and the end all at the same time. And here's the thing about God's faithfulness. We have to have faith in God's faithfulness. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. God, I can't see your faithfulness. God, this is so distant, but I have faith in your faithfulness. I have, I have faith in your faithfulness that you see the beginning and the end at the same time, that you're not going to leave me in this difficult place in this discipline, but I celebrate. I don't enjoy, they didn't enjoy captivity, right? But there's this understanding, but God, we recognize that you are good and that you are faithful. I would say this, some of you need to pray. And some of you pray this, God, give me faith to understand your faithfulness. Give me faith. Help me with my faith to trust your faithfulness. And the fourth thing that we see is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. This is a word that gives me more comfort than really any other word in Scripture. This understanding of God's sovereignty. So ultimately, it's very simply put, sovereignty means that God is in complete control of everything at every time. Nothing happens according to God's will, to, to God's will, according to God's desires, right? God never, never, nothing ever happens apart from God's allowance of it happening is the best way to say it. God's, he has foreknowledge and knowledge of every situation. And he's moving in this place. And God is ultimately sovereign. He is in control of everything. And so what I can say is this. You could, it means a whole lot more than that, but it definitely never means less. God is ultimately in control at all times in every situation. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. God is sovereign in every situation. We see these, we see this in, the, in this first verse of Ezra 1. We see God in action. It says, and I love this. It says, in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fulfill the, his own word, right? In, in order to fulfill his own word, the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. I love that. I love the sovereignty and power of God of moving the heart of the king in the moment. I love that picture. Listen, This doesn't make any sense for Cyrus to do it, especially the way that he did it. Could you imagine if you're, um, you know, uh, the Jewish male in the day and your job, you go into the temple and and all of a sudden this edict is read, says the edict of Cyrus, the new king, the king of Persia now over Babylon. And he comes and he basically says, hey, Jerusalem, all of Israel, one of my first first acts as king is to give you your freedom. Number one. Second thing, I want to release you and I'm encouraging you. Go back to Jerusalem and build a temple to worship your God in. Oh, and third, I know it costs a lot of money, so 
here is a bunch of silver and gold that you can go do that. Oh, and to show that my great compassion, here are all of your religious artifacts back, right? Here's the, here's the, uh, what's the, the, what is it called? The Ark of the Covenant, yes, I'm thinking of this, there's a lost ark, right? The Ark of the Covenant right here, walking back in, and all of these pieces, right? All of the things of God to take them back, and, and these guys are going, what? And could you imagine, right, back in the day, it was obviously the, it was the culture, the, the, the mom is staying at home with all the children and the grandparents and the aunt and the uncles who are all living the same house together, and, this, and the husband, the, the dad, the son walks back in, and his eyes are bugging out, and he's like, what happened? What's wrong? And it's like, is it bad? Is so-and-so dead? No, it's good. And what's going on? We've been given freedom. And the wife, who's the holy one, she goes, what? She's like, yeah. And she goes, it's only been 67 years. Jeremiah said it'd be 70. He's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, I didn't forget it. What happened? Well, he's giving, and he's, and he's going through all the things. And she's like, oh, praise God. Oh, praise God. And all of a sudden he goes, oh, yeah, 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 praise God. My wife knew that because she's the holy one. She's like falling on her knees, worshiping God. God, you are so good. You have fulfilled your promise because you are sovereign. You are a Lord and you didn't even make us wait 70. You're so merciful. You only waited 67 years. Oh, you are so good. You are so good. God is sovereign. Moving on behalf of his children. We see this in the story of Jeremiah. God disciplines. But God is patient. God is loving. God is faithful. And God is sovereign. You see, discipline is a great gift of the Father. Every day, he's disciplining you to walk. In the biblical character, he's called you to walk as a child of God. He's disciplining you. He's speaking into your life. He's training. He's educating. And here's discipline here because he loves us too much of reactive of punishment. Why? Because he hates to see us walking down a path that leads to destruction. He loves us too much to turn us over to our devices. There are those... There are those who struggle in difficult seasons, whether it's discipline or just hardship. And they're like those kids who's like you've just taken their best toy and they're just frustrated and they're stomping their feet and they're screaming out and they're beating whatever it may be. And have you ever seen those kids, right? And, and, and the reality is in the kingdom we do that all the time. We just sit there and we beat on things and we get frustrated we get we share our frustrations again and again and again and again and it's just like the parents of those children they come over and they just take them and they wrap them up and said you just beat it out if you need to but i'm going to love you even in the middle of your hardship i'm even going to love you in the moment of your frustration towards me when really you're sitting there beating on heaven because you're just so angry i'm okay I can handle that. But there always comes a point when the child stops beating and they realize the only one who can actually help them is the very one they're beating in the first place. God himself. And he looks and says, 
I've noticed. You and your hardship have noticed your discipline. But it's now time to be quiet. Zephaniah talks as he quiets us with his love. Zephaniah 3, I think 17. He quiets us with his love. And in our moments of discipline, in our moments of hardship and difficulty, we find ourselves at this place and we lose sight of heaven and we find ourselves in angst. And the only thing that's ultimately going to pull us out is as we connect with the Father and recognize, man, he knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And I will rest in my maturity. God, I'm, I'm not enjoying this. But God, I know that you are for me, that you're not against me. You have plans to prosper me and not to harm me, to give me a hope and to give me a future. Discipline is a gift of the Father. And so practically speaking this morning as we've come to our end, it's simply this. You are living life every day. Every day you live life. And every day the Father is disciplining. Every day he's speaking proactively. He's, he's engaging. He's training. He's educating. He's raising you up just like you do with your children, like your parents did for you every day. Every day we have a choice. Do we walk on the straight and narrow path that God's called us to or, or not? And every day he's speaking to us about ways and things of walking with him. And my question this morning is very simple. Are you listening to his discipline every day of your life? Are you aware of the reality of him speaking, of guiding, and of leading? Are you too busy banging on his chest to see him? Are you too busy walking the way that you want to walk, the way that you want to whenever you want to? Are you being like the Israelites who listen to a word like this on Sunday morning and leave and never flesh it out? God, listen to this. God takes it very serious that you walk with him. He takes it very serious that you keep in step with him. Not because of anger or frustration, but because he loves you. Because he knows that if you don't walk with him and walk on the path that he set, that it automatically will lead to destruction. And he's looking and saying very simply, I take it serious because I love you. How many of you who love your children just let them run off into the highway to run around and play? No, you love them too much. You take, it, you take serious their obedience to the things that you've called them to. And God does the same for us. Not because he's angry or he's trying to call us to some great place. It's simply because he loves us. He is patient. He is faithful. He loves us. And he is sovereign. This morning, some of us need to take time and just Listen to the Lord and allow him to speak in our lives. Some of us this morning need to be very practical and say, God, what are the things you said about walking in this path? God, am I taking it serious, my journey and my walk with you? Or other things getting in the way and distracting me to the point that I'm lukewarm also? God, I need to be on fire for you because being cold is not an option. Jesus, I want to walk with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. 
Father, we praise you and thank you for the life that you've spoken through your son Jesus and through his death and resurrection to us. This morning, Father, we praise you for your discipline. We thank you because you love us. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you are faithful. And Father, this morning, to understand these parts of you, Father, it's going to take an act of faith for many of us, God, just to believe that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are for us, that you love us. Father, that you are sovereign. And so, Holy Spirit, come this morning and have your way with us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen.